So and then that and then the music swells. We get more. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yanis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this show, we like to bring fans, critics, everyone that enjoys the the world of cinema together to sort of uh, even the playing field or level the playing field as you were as far as film criticism and really focus on the positive. Um, Every film hits a person differently. Everybody has a different emotional reaction to a movie. So by bringing on a new guest every episode, we get a fresh perspective on, uh, on a film that they love, on something that they grew up with or something that really resonates with them personally, some, a film that really means a lot to them. So this week, it's really going to be an interesting episode because we actually have my mom, Janine Yanis, uh, joining us to talk about a, uh, a holiday favorite of hers. So mom, I'm glad to have you on the show. How's it feel making your podcasting yeah. debut? It's, it's exciting. I'm, I'm a little nervous, <laughs> but it's exciting. I've never done this before. That's cool. I'm glad I can bring you into it. And you've heard me, you've heard about me doing this forever. And I think you've listened to some episodes, especially the ones with me and Freddie. Uh, so you, uh-huh. you, you, but you, I don't know if you listen to any with the current format, this new kind of setup of the Crooked Table podcast. Is that correct? I, I, I listened to one. I listened to one. Which, which one was it? Just out of curiosity. I, I would say it was your first one. The Ace Ventura one? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. With me and Kai. Yeah, and uh, mm-hmm. I still want to get Freddie on this version. It's just uh, scheduling is kind of crazy with him and work and everything. So those longtime listeners of the Crooked Table podcast um, who are waiting for a Yanis Brothers reunion, that, that will happen at some point, I promise. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it's cool that you're, you're talking on, um, on the podcast with me about um, specifically, actually, I, I approached you a few weeks ago and I said, hey, I want to do something just looking at the schedule of the show basically and i wanted and i noticed that if since we post uh, the new episodes on the podcast feed on mondays uh even though they go on uh, odyssey on odysy1.com if you want to listen to it live there wednesdays at 7 p.m uh, but they go live on mondays on the podcast feed so i was looking ahead into to december when i was planning these episodes and i said oh christmas eve is a monday i i should probably maybe who who do i know that really really loves christmas um so, so, so I mentioned to you about, hey, how would you feel about going on the podcast and uh, and talking about, you know, about a Christmas movie? Since you're you're probably the the biggest Christmas person that I know. Um, what can you tell the listeners a little bit about? Uh, what is it specifically about Christmas that that you find that you know that makes you so excited? Why? why I mean, why you're the kind of person that watches uh, all the Christmas movies kind of all year round? Like, is it Lifetime or Hallmark? Who does that Christmas in July where they play those holiday movies in the middle of the summer? Yeah, it's, it's it's Hallmark. They usually do the Christmas in July, and then of course um, I DVR it so that I can look at it throughout the year. Right. But I really love. Christmas, and I I just love everything about it. I I love the music. I love the lights, uh, um, the shopping, the uh, the movies. I love the happy endings. You know, it's not like that all the time, but on Hallmark it is. And I just love the um, preparing for it and planning. It's all about family, and it's also about memories. 
um, of me growing up, you know, um, remembering my Christmases as a child. Uh, so all of that, and the only other person I know that's as crazy as I am is my sister. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. No, I, you know, Kai, Kai grew up with not as much of a Christmas presence in, in her household. So when I tell her, like, why, why I like Christmas, it's, it's basically like a less exuberant version of what you just said. It's really about family and tradition and like, like feeling of warmth. Um, you know, even, even though I feel like a lot of that kind of, it's easy to, to lose sight of that, especially nowadays. Everything so much is, is becomes to quote, I guess, Charlie Brown. It's been, it's become like so commercialized. Where, you know, everything is about, you know, November 1st and they have this stuff in stores and it's just like just pushing you to spend money and it becomes to the outside to the outside perspective. It could be that Christmas is like like, again, another reference to a uh, holiday classic like the Grinch or where he's like, if I take all their stuff away, they won't celebrate Christmas. You know, it's easy to kind of lose sight of the emotional part of it about the you know, the togetherness, the, the, the positivity, the goodwill toward men. And, uh, and like you said, the, the tradition and, and, the, um, that kind of the positive emotional aspect of it. I think that's, a, it's the same part that appeals to me, um, you know, doing the light that, you know, decorating and, and, you know, eating Christmas cookies and buying presents and all that stuff is fun, but it's ultimately in service of, um, kind of appreciating the people in your life and, uh, creating, like you said, creating memories, creating something that you're going to remember, um, I guess, the rest of your life and you can pass on to your kids and such. Exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah. And that's the thing that uh, Kai and I try and do with, with our daughter is to, uh, is to, you know, she's only two now. So we're basically just starting to uh, establish traditions about like, let's go see the Christmas lights. And she loves Christmas now, as you know. <laughs> but the listeners don't. Um, <laughs> so every time, you know, we're walking down the street, she's like, Christmas! And she gets really, really into it, <laughs> which is really sweet. <laughs> so, yeah, that is sweet. Initially, when I when I came to you about doing the Christmas, uh, doing a, the Christmas episode of the podcast this year, um, you mentioned probably uh, the Muppet Christmas Carol or, oh man, what was the other one you said? I forgot now. It's not the um, one that we're going to talk was, about. Um, it was Scrooge. Scrooge, with, that's right. um, Albert Finney. Which I think is a film that a lot of people, uh, a lot of people probably forget exists. But ultimately, I think the one you picked makes the most sense because it it is the one that uh, that I I thought of at first. Like I I was I I sort of assumed you were going to pick this film um, because you seem to reference it a lot as one of your favorites. Like you're like, oh, I got to watch that one, and I think you even save it for Christmas Eve a lot of the time, don't you? Yeah, I do, and. Um... I, I was going to go with um, probably Muppet Christmas Carol, but I was watching TV and guess why Christmas was on. Spoilers. And that is, <laughs> I looked at it, right? I mean, I just watched and I said, yeah, I have to go with this one. <laughs> uh-huh. Because it, it just brings back a lot of memories and it's very, you know, I, I can get very nostalgic and, this movie, um, I remember looking at it with my sister and I said, yeah, this, this probably has the most, uh, memories for me. And I've looked at it every year for, well, since I was a baby. <laughs> right. Yeah. And yeah, I'm, I mean, so. I, I'm only 35 and I already get nostalgic for things too, where like, you know, I, I 
we've been, you know, the little one and I have been already sort of watching Muppet Christmas Carol. I mean, her attention span is very short, so we're watching kind of segments, but still, yeah, that's that's one I watch a lot too. Uh, and this film, we both kind of have very different, um, very different histories with it. Obviously, you've been watching it forever, and I've always been more ambivalent to it. So I guess without, you know, without delaying it any further, let's just go ahead and segue into a little bit of the trailer audio for this episode's feature presentation, White Christmas. The two greatest figures in show business, Bing and Danny, as two ex-GIs who form the perfect partnership. Rosemary and Vera Ellen as the sisters who have them in a spin. With Dean Jagger as the unemployed general they take under their wing. Apparently there's still quite a bit about show business I don't understand. Oh, it'll come to you, sir. Just takes time. We wouldn't be any good as generals. You weren't any good as privates. A wonderful story that will warm your hearts, just as the breathtaking scope of a new screen wonder will widen your eyes. White Christmas. So that was a little bit of the audio for the for the trailer of White Christmas, which was released in 1954, directed by Michael Curtis. And this stars uh, Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye as a pair of soldiers who, once they get out of the army, uh, become like a famous uh, two man, you know, musical variety act. And uh, I guess it kind of goes from there. But it, basically, they, they meet a couple of girls and they end up at a uh, I guess is it is it technically a bed and breakfast? It's called they call it an inn in the movie. It isn't like the Columbia Inn, but it's basically a bed and breakfast. Yeah, right? it's it's really uh it's really a bed and breakfast, and uh, I, I, yeah, I mean at that time everything was like an inn, right? Okay. But it, it was a bed and breakfast, really. Okay, so they find themselves at a bed and breakfast in Vermont, and uh, I guess we'll we'll get more into what happens when they get there uh, as we go through the story. So. So just to get things started, what, uh, why did you ultimately pick this film? I mean, I guess you already kind of touched on it. So uh, the memory is associated with it, right? The fact that this yeah, is, this yeah. is the one you have, um, you have the most, I guess, emotional connection to as far as Christmas movies are concerned. So why don't, why don't we delve into a little bit of, you know, when did you first see this movie? Did you see it in theaters when you were a little girl? And, uh, you know, how is your appreciation for it? developed over time um i think i might have seen it in theaters when i was probably four three something like that uh i was two in 1954 so uh but really the memories i have are looking at it with my sister when she was a baby uh and i was about five years old and looking at it with her and the parts that really got to me and ultimately to her were the song Sisters, that, um, you know, it's all about the sisters and their adventures together. You know, they are also a singing act and their adventures with um, trying to pair one of, you know, one of them with uh, one of those guys, you know. So it it basically, um, it, it just hit home for me and my sister. So, Actually, I have that on my phone, that song, when my sister calls. So, oh, that's adorable. Um, and so, it's, yeah, it's, it's, very, it's very emotional for me sometimes when I look at it. Where people would go, all right, this is good. But for me, it's, it's wonderful. And like I said, it just brings back a lot of memories, sitting there with my sister watching it. 
So Rosemary Clooney and Vera Ellen are the ones that play uh, Betty and Judy, respectively. So d- did you and Auntie want to be a, a, you know, a musical act together? Is that what those little girls were like? We could do that. No. doesn't no, look that hard. Kind of. My sister wanted to be a dancer, and I did want to be a singer. So, yeah, I guess so. I guess so in, in some respect. Yeah, I guess we wanted. I was always Betty. That makes a lot of sense. And she was, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As the oldest sister, and and she was the baby sister, and I always wanted to take care of her. Well, that, and, uh, so you relate to things like that, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, it also makes sense too with the 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 way that you said you wanted to be a singer and she wanted to be a dancer because not only is yeah. Bet not only is Betty the older sister and kind of the you know as Judy says kind of the mother hen of the two of them but Rosemary Clooney is primarily known as a singer and Vera Ellen who I didn't know this till I did because I went through IMDB and read a lot of the trivia and I did a little bit of research and stuff and Vera Ellen her voice was her singing voice was actually dubbed in the movie so I probably presumably she was actually hired more for her dancing skills oh wow I I didn't even know that which makes sense because she sings she sings in part of ensemble groups, but I think she's, you know, she doesn't have like a big solo moment or anything. Right. Uh, she has right. her, her bits right. in some of the songs, but then she has those really, she's like what, with one with Danny Kaye, and then she has like another one, I think when they're rehearsing later at the end, uh, like really big, elaborate, over like uh, extended dance numbers where she really gets to kind of like, those are her big, those are her big moments yeah. in the film. Yeah. So, so that's funny that you and, uh, you and Auntie sort of, gravitated towards the ones who spoke with the, the singer and the dancer uh, based on your yeah, interests and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so for me, my, my relationship to this movie, obviously, you know, I grew up with you, so I was aware of it and you would put it on on a, you know, every year, but it was, I don't know. I, it's, it's my whole big thing, uh, you probably remember this. My whole big thing growing up was my complaint was this is, <laughs> doesn't feel like a Christmas movie to me. This is what always I always said. Do you remember this? Yeah, yes, I do. I always like, okay, it's called White Christmas. He sings White Christmas at the beginning of the film and then again at the end of the film. But in the middle, there's a bunch of unrelated songs <laughs> that are not about Christmas. <laughs> like, I guess for, for, for my, you know, I like I love movies, obviously. That's why I have a podcast about them. But And I love Christmas movies. But I, I feel like for, um, for, for me, a Christmas movie has to really center on the holiday itself. So it either has to involve santa it has to involve like scrooge and something happening with that it has to the plot has to be kind of inextricable from christmas you could easily describe this movie change the title and have him sing a different song beginning and end and it's kind of almost the same movie it just happens to coincide on christmas i mean it's it's a very wintry movie there's a whole song about snow that they they sing on the train and everything uh but it doesn't even snow it doesn't even snow in the movie until the very end (laughs) because because they're singing on the train about snow and snow and then they get there and they're like what the hell where's the snow and then at the end of the movie oh i i, I did really love I mean, we'll get there but i did really love at the end of the movie where the the set sort of lifts up and you can see outside and you're like hey the snow that we were promised two hours ago there it is and i thought that yeah, was that was yeah. that was a really that was a really cool moment it's um there's a lot of stuff in this film that's very uh, cinematic whether it's the dance numbers or moments like you know the big finale and uh, so so anyway that's kind of been my connection with the film like i was like i, I mean i guess i guess i get why you like it because it's a personal thing for you just like in the way that you know i have 
the like a chipmunk the chipmunk christmas is really is really important part of my childhood or Pee Wee's playhouse christmas special you know where other people might watch and be like what the hell is this why are we watching this i'm like you don't understand it's, or jingle all the way or jingle all the way well that's uh, that one's actually kind of developed a little bit of a cult following and in, in you know either yeah. either people that like legitimately think it's a good movie or people who recognize that it, the movie's kind of a mess and it's kind of all over the place so it's kind of one of those like it's so cheesy but i love it you know which is kind of how i feel about it yeah uh, yeah so um yeah no uh so it, it's it's a very and that's like I said that's uh, part of why what makes this podcast so interesting is that it's subjective. So you come on and you talk about a movie that really means a lot to you, and we get to hear about why, and then I get to kind of respond to it and come from a different perspective. So everything is you know it's it's you constantly uh, expanding listeners' horizons with different experiences of movies and different um, you know different different uh, uh, different emotional i don't know experiences i already said that word i was trying to be i was trying to say something different but um so yeah that's kind of my thing with this movie uh so i think this might be the first time in a long long time that i've seen it all the way through because i'm sure i watched it with you know sure you you put it on for us at some point when Uh when freddie and i were kids and I, i know i've watched it all the way through before but i haven't seen it in its entirety like this in a long time even though I remember, like, oh, this is a song about snow. I'm like, oh, this is the sister's number that, that Mama likes so much. Things like that. I, I hadn't really, you know, seen it as an adult. So this was that's that's what made this made this viewing experience really interesting for me. So yeah, um, it, it's not only about the, the the nostalgia for me, also, and I understand this better when I got older. It's the fact that they have um, a general who who has you know, really been, you know, retired and he doesn't feel good about himself anymore. And, and they do something because he was, you know, he, he, he was, he always sacrificed for his troops. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And the whole thing about the selfless acts that they did when they do the party at the end and all of the, all of his, um, the squad is there and, and they all, you know, it was a big surprise for him. And right. when he walks in and everybody's applauding for him and they're all standing at attention. And well, I mean, that whole man. thing, yeah. that whole thing, like it was just like the best Christmas present that he could have gotten. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when I was younger, I didn't even think of that. But when I looked at it, you know, these last years, I thought well, that is really nice that, you know, it made him feel good about himself. It made him feel proud of himself again. You know, he didn't even want to wear his uniform to go to that um, that party, that that show. And it was, I mean, that was very touching. Yeah, I'd sort of forgotten about the uh, the part, uh, the scene in the beginning. And I guess we can kind of get into the into the review portion of the of the episode at this point. Um, the whole scene with them in the war in 1940, is it 19, I guess it's 1944. Yeah. When it starts and it's yeah. Christmas Eve and, and the general shows up and they do the little show and all that. And, and basically it's basically the setup for the very end where they're, where they're all like, well, follow the old man, wherever to go, that whole thing. Um, yeah. I forgotten about that whole scene. I, I remembered like uh, them meeting the girls and then kind of being when it, when it starts but there's a whole thing with them establishing that they're in the army and oh and then um 
that Davis saved Wallace's life. And then he kind of uses that to, to guilt him into doing a, a, a show together. Yeah. I thought I, that was really funny. Uh, and it's interesting too, because Danny Kay was a late addition to this. Initially they wanted, uh, I think Fred Astaire, who was also, who's in Holiday Inn with uh, Bing Crosby. And it's also, you know, Irving Berlin and Holiday Inn's actually where yeah. the song White Christmas was uh, originated. Right. So, so Danny. I didn't know that. Yeah. So Fred Astaire, I don't, I don't think Fred Astaire would have done nearly the job that Danny Kay did. How Danny s- Kay was fantastic. How so? How yeah. do you, how, how do you think he, he's in improvement? Um, he's funny. I mean, he's just naturally funny. Even when they're singing the sister's song and, you know, he was just, he was very comical. You wouldn't have got that from Fred Astaire when they're dancing and he's hitting him with the feather fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they're dancing and he's hitting Bing Crosby with the feather fan, and and at the end after they were finished, he has that like that giggle and you know he's just a <laughs> yeah. very funny man, naturally funny man, and um and I've I've always loved Danny Kay, and uh, I actually saw him on Broadway once, and he he's he's. I I don't think people know or talk about him very much, but he was he was really a good actor, dramatically good actor also, but very good comedian. What were some of his other works that people who aren't familiar with him, except for they this might movie? know him in um, Court Jester, or he? I mean, he did he did a lot of uh, comedies. But I saw him on Broadway in Two by Two, mm-hmm. where he was supposed to be Noah and, you know, with his sons. And he was dramatic in that. And uh, he did a great job. Very moving performance. So I think, uh, I, I, I don't think a lot of people your age know him. <laughs> you know, I hadn't, I'm not familiar with a lot of his work just because it was mostly just, just before mm-hmm. my time. But I, I mean, I agree with you. He brings a lot to this and in He's definitely he has like a sort of an inherent affability about him that I th- that nicely mm-hmm. that nicely contrasts with Bing Crosby's sort of uh, dryness, you know. Yeah, and exactly. it's like Bing Crosby can dance, but I but he's primarily known as a singer. And I think Danny Kaye can sing really well, but it's really the dancing. We're like kind of like with Vera Ellen, it's really the dancing that he really gets to show off in this movie as far as oh yeah performing wise. Yeah. So yeah. those that you know those. Uh, abilities contrast really well and mesh nicely together plus you know yeah their senses of humor uh they complement each other is sort of with being being crosby sort of as the the straight man in a way and danny k kind of pulling him in all to these into all of these shenanigans like with the uh, you know giving the train tickets to the girls and things like that yeah um so no I, I agree with you on that point i think they have really good chemistry in this and i think is this the only movie that they did together i think it might be so yeah yeah um so we start in 1944 with them they're performing for the for the troops they say oh there's no christmas in the army and it's it's interesting because this came out just a less than a decade after world war ii ended and it has it already has you could and i think you can tell a little bit because that was a really rough time for the world and and you know the u.s uh in this case particularly and you can Mm -hmm. tell you can pick up on that because the the beginning of the movie 
to contrast with the kind of cheery adventure that they're all about to go on, it has a very cynical sort of attitude towards war. You know, like it's all very dark and dour and not like some of these other war movies that would come later where they're like, yeah, we won, uh, you know, the more like patriotic, like jingoistic type of war movie. It it, it really, right. I think that's an, that's an interesting point that this big Hollywood musical starts out on kind of a, kind of a bum note of all these people in the, in the army and they, you know, they find an escape through the music and through their camaraderie with each other. But it's, you know, it's ultimately not, not something that any of them any, like particularly enjoy. And I think that's, uh, that's kind of a surprising starting point for ultimately a big holiday musical, you know? Right. Right. So then from there, three minutes in, he does the, the, the big song, the title song, just kind of, again, like I said, this first opening sequence, it's really all about just setting up everything from the finale. So like everything that happens in this first scene pretty much happens again in the in the ending with White Christmas. We'll we'll follow the old man and uh, the whole thing with General Waverly. And uh, it's to me, that whole opening was really about optimism and kind of in the face of like terror and adversity, things like that. And so how do you do you think that that has any bearing on like what the film itself is trying to say as as we follow uh, Wallace and Davis kind of on with their their adventure? Yes, I do. I do. Uh, I think the uh, the camaraderie, you know, at the beginning, and, and then he, Bing Crosby, he is able to gather most of the men with uh, a few hours' notice to get them to come to Vermont and bring their families to celebrate, you know, the general, and they all, most of them showed up that they could. So it has to say something about how they did love the general and they, you know, they feel like they owe him because he was, he was all for his guys, you know, um, you know, and he was the one that, that kept their spirits up, really. How do you? I mean, yeah, he was tough on them, but he was also good to them. Yeah, that was a great moment at the end too, where he's like, "Oh, your your uniforms are substandard or whatever." He's like, f- like faux criticizing them. He's like, yeah. "I've never seen anything more wonderful in my life." It was really that's a sweet moment yeah. when he. Oh, it's very touching, you know. The the performance there by the actor whose name I'm looking up now because I forgot I had it up a minute ago. It's, uh, Dean, Dean Jagger. Jag- Dean Jagger. Yeah, I got it here too. Uh, yeah. But the performance, like the look on his face when he comes in and sees everybody gathered there and saluting him and everything, I thought was really sweet. Definitely, Bing Crosby was, if they had a musical, he was the go-to guy. Um, uh, you know, um, and you know, he, he also had a TV show. I mean, we used to watch the TV show. I mean, he used to get his whole family together on his TV show and he used to do a, a Christmas special. And um, he used to have his whole family on there, and then later, of course, we read all the bad, the bad publicity about that he wasn't as nice a father as he appeared to be. But he was like, well, they call him like Father Christmas. That's what we used to call him. I, he was I like Father Christmas. I was aware of that. I actually wrote that down. That was one of the things I was going to say. Uh, yeah, yeah, because he was the guy, and it's funny because it seems like now, a little bit. It seems like Michael Bublé, who's my guy, who's like my favorite current singer, um, yeah. he's sort of tapping into a little bit of the Bing Crosby Christmas juice, you know, 
because when right. Crosby came out with White Christmas in the 40s and released, I'm assuming, a few Christmas albums, had specials and all that stuff, just his voice has kind of a, a natural warmth to it. You know, the way that yeah. his version and then White Christmas has been sung by basically everyone that is that has recorded any kind of holiday album or song, uh, including Michael Bublé, who's done a couple different versions of it, including what would... It, one of which has actually uh, is a duet with him and Bing Crosby that they did that they like merged the recordings. I don't know if I've ever played that version for you. I should maybe next time I see you in person, I'll play that. No, I I have never heard that version. I would love to hear that because I mean uh, nobody sings it like Bing Crosby. That's exactly and I've my heard point. many renditions of it, and you know I love Sinatra, but even he doesn't do it as <laughs> Yeah. Nobody does it like Bing Crosby. Bing Crosby kind of owns that song. I mean, he did originate it. To be fair. But he, he kind of owns that song in a way that, like, Nat King Cole owns the Christmas song. You yeah. know, everybody else, that's another one that everybody sings, but nobody's, nobody comes in with chestnuts roasting on an open fire, like Nat King Cole. Uh, and I think that's yeah. definitely the same with Crosby. Part of that is just the, the way that the tenor of his voice, part of that is his kind of reputation, like you said, as this, as this like, uh, ideal family man. Which, as you said, I was going to mention, I was going to ask about that too. It was much more of a persona, and much more of a manufactured persona than I think people realized at the time. Um, so, so yeah, I think I think um, he brings a lot to to the song, uh, the song in the film, with kind of his his reputation uh, in the industry, and uh, you know that I mean, let's be honest, him being him being in the movie was probably a big part of why it was so holiday themed because that was his, that was his jam. That was kind of his, yeah, his niche. Yeah. He was the Christmas guy. So of course you're going to, if you, any movie you, you're going to want to make a, a movie with him and make it white Christmas. Even if a lot of the movie, you could have called this Waverly's boys or something like that and not even have Christmas in the title or anything. And it would have been, it would have still worked as a movie. Uh, um, so yeah. I, I think, you know, I think the marketing wise, I think it's really smart that they, they tagged it to a song that Crosby and Berlin sort of worked on together, and um, you know, you sold it as sort of an extension of his Christmas brand, so to speak. They leave the army, and then they, there's a big montage with all these covers of Variety, and they got a TV show, and they're they're singing "Blue Skies," things like that. And then uh, before you know it, they end up meeting up with the Haynes sisters, which I thought was was also kind of funny because it, it, they they have this whole plan for uh well judy has this whole plan for uh kind of connecting with them that i thought was really really interesting can you you want to talk about that a little bit uh yeah she was and she did what she did was she wrote a letter but she wrote it like her brother who was in the army with them like the, the letter came from her brother when actually Judy was the one that wrote it. And uh, her sister didn't know anything about it. Uh, and so Judy was kind of, you know, plotting and conniving on that. But, hey, good for her. Because <laughs> she's the one that got them there. So um, and uh, it worked out good. But she was, she was a real go-getter. Yeah, that, that's very creative. Like, yeah, that's very, he's, she's very resourceful, I think. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, throughout the course of the movie, it's funny because... At various points, a lot of them are like sort of sort of conspiring different things. Um, I think, you know, once they meet, 
Wallace, uh, Wallace and Davis sort of instantly kind of, <laughs> they kind of pair off where they're like, oh, look at those blue eyes. Oh, they're brown or whatever. Like, you know, like they're each look, they each kind of, yeah. like, they each yeah. kind of go dibs to a different sister, which yeah. I thought was kind of funny. Um, and then, you know, obviously Davis and Judy instantly hit it off and have that amazing dance sequence outside, which is just right. a, a classic Hollywood um Hollywood number and uh, you know for me as a modern moviegoer who's sadly a little lacking in my you know my oeuvre of classic Hollywood musicals that I've seen there's a lot that I should probably catch up on it it reminds me of something like you could really see what movies like La La Land are kind of going for like what they're homaging that kind of big sweeping uh you know the music swells and and the 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 two dancers are like in perfect synchronicity and things like that um, oh yeah! It really makes me want to show you. It really makes me want to show you La La Land since I know you haven't seen that all the way through. Um, that that was that was probably for me one of the one of the best uh, one of the best numbers in the film as far as just like from from a spectacle perspective. And this mm-hmm. was this was one of the this was the marketed as the first picture in whatever Vista Vision is like it says presented in Vista Vision at the beginning. Uh, you know, it, I think it's probably just a different um, aspect ratio, more of a, you know, letterbox style screen. Uh, what did you think about that number that they do outside? Which is, I don't even remember the name of the song. Was it a song or was it, did they sing or did they just dance? I think it might have been just dancing. You mean the best things happen while you're dancing? That one? Oh, yeah, that is the name of it. Yeah, that one. They they did they did sing it. Yeah, that's a uh, heavenly as, down. Um, it was. Their background, their their uh, their I don't know the backup group. You can hear them singing it, but you saw Danny Kay and Vera Ellen go out and dance, and and they danced beautifully together. I mean, they really did. They were they were paired perfectly. I, I, the casting was great in that movie. Mm-hmm. And similar to what and, I was. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I was going to say, but one of the favorite songs in that for me was uh, "Count Your Blessings." Count my blessings. Mm-hmm. I love that 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 whole scene, and I love that song. Well, because some of the songs, like like such as "White Christmas," are from other musicals. Um, mm-hmm. You know, some of the songs are not uh, eligible for the Oscars and everything. But "Count Your Blessings" right. instead of "Sheep" was actually the the Oscar nominated the Oscar nominated song from this movie. Like that was nominated that yeah. year. It didn't win, but that was the sole Oscar nomination for this film when it came out. I did notice that too in my in my research, um, and that really that whole dinner scene I thought was really was really fun with them meeting up and uh, kind of the prelude to the the best thing hap- things happen when you're dancing number. Uh-huh. I, I, there was a lot yeah. of really fun character based comedy in there, and uh, you know, ev- plus the sisters. Uh, performance that you mentioned earlier which yeah. which that song pops up what like three i think like at least three times in the movie if i'm not mistaken uh-huh. yeah because they did the, the girls did it first and they were on their way out to catch the train and Bing crosby and danny Kay did it and then they did it again when they did the uh show at the at the vermont inn Right. When they were just performing to a few people. And and I also think um, that the the one that is his housekeeper, she was hilarious in that. 
the oh. one that listened in on all the phone calls. Emma, yeah. I, I noticed that too. Yeah. I, wanted, I noted that, that that's Mary Wickes, who was, to me, yeah. I grew up with as the, one of the cast members in Sister Act. That's what right. I know her from. Yeah. And I, so I saw her name in the in the credits at the beginning. I was like, oh, I forgot that I forgot that she was in this because I know her from Sister Act. And uh, she was one of the voices in the Disney Hunchback of Notre Dame. That's what I knew her from. Yeah. One of those things. Yeah. Um, so, no, she had a, she has a lot of, of, of fun moments, too. Um, but going back to also kind of the cynicism that I said that starts the movie off and that Bing Crosby's character is sort of his ongoing thread. Uh, they have as the other two are outside having that like really romantic dance and basically falling in love. Uh, he, they're having the whole conversation at the table about the, everybody's got an angle, which I thought was a really great setup for later on when she thinks yeah. that he's sort of uh, exploiting the situation for his own personal gain. And that, that's typical in every movie. They, there's always a misunderstanding on, you know, that one of them always and this is in all the Hallmark movies, too, by the way. Of course it's always it is. a misunderstanding. <laughs> and so they decide to leave because this is never going to work between us. And then, of course, at the end, they always get back together. That was really a good scene with the two of them. And I think it it, it establishes pretty early on uh, both of, well, all four of those characters by kind of just throwing them together and letting them all hash out their different, uh, you know, ideologies and the different ways they see the world and things like that. And I thought that, so I thought that was a, right. a fun way to do that. So then they get on, then they get on the, the whole train situation, more, more Danny K shenanigans. Uh, and uh, tell us about, tell listeners about why you love that snow number so much. Oh, well, you know, uh, I'm a New York girl, so I'm, I'm used to getting, well, when I was younger, we used to get a lot of white Christmases. Not not so much later in in years, but always oh, see snow. And now that I'm in Florida for thirty years, <laughs> um, that that snow number still gets me because it, it's so pretty. And when the snow falls, everything looks like it's glistening, you know, and nothing looks dirty. Everything is just beautiful and clean and white and it just it, it just makes you it just makes you feel happy you know I mean maybe living in it all the time might not make you feel happy but around the holidays at white and to have a white Christmas it's really something it's yeah. like uh, it's like the magic part of every movie when it starts snowing and they when they open up the uh, the doors and there's the scene, the actual snow scene, with the horse and carriage going by. I mean, that's just that's breathtaking to me. Yeah. No, like I said earlier, that was that is a great moment. And there's yeah. a lot of stuff here. You know, you could, I, I wanted to make sure I mentioned that the director Michael Curtis, who did this movie, also did Casablanca, and like and a lot of really like uh, classic Hollywood films. And you can kind of, you can kind of tell that there's there's a really experienced filmmaker behind the scenes with just the way that, um, you know, the way that those scenes and moments like the one you just mentioned, that the way that they're captured on film it, it, with such a, such a scope and really emphasizing the, uh, the awe of the moment, I guess, as it were. Right. So did you, did you, were you aware of that, that the guy that directed this also did Casablanca? 
I did not know that. Yeah, no. he's done. He, he and I only wrote, I wrote down only that one because it's the obviously the most famous film that he's done. But um, he had a pretty extensive resume going back to the, obviously at least the forties, where I was like, oh, I've heard of almost all of these movies, and a lot of them people are still talking about. So it's it's it just goes to show you that um, the, you know they put a really strong team together to tell the story even behind the scenes. So so right from the train moment, like they have this, they do snow, and then early on, Davis and Judy are already planning on playing matchmaker uh, with mm-hmm. Wallace and Betty. And yet, what really confused me, and I know I know I know what the explanation for this is, but what really confused me is later on. When Betty is like, hey, maybe we should just pretend to be engaged. And he's like, what? Which confuses me because <laughs> I thought he I thought he fell for her first. He seemed like he was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to make this happen. Because even in the beginning of the movie, even in the beginning of the movie, he's telling Wallace, he's like, oh, we need to get you a girl. You know, we're going to have time. You know, we don't get out. We don't have any ladies. We don't like have a life outside of you know our jobs. And, uh, and then when he met Judy, I was, or yeah, Judy. And he was just like, all right, that's it. This, I, I like this one. I, I, uh, I can you know see a future with her and that. And then, so when she mentions about a future and he freaks out, I was just watching it thinking like, dude, you're confusing me. Like mixed signals much. <laughs> that's because I think he, he liked the part of, you know, dancing with her and you know she's beautiful and right but i think he 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 planned on being a confirmed bachelor and he just wanted uh you know wallace to some to fun married yeah. so that he could have some free time because wallace is a you know big workaholic so um if you if you have nine I, kids I don't think he didn't even know that he was falling for her Right. Really, I think it just hit him all of a sudden you know he was just looking to have a good time i guess at that point yeah and I, I loved his line too. If you have nine kids and you spend five minutes with them, that's forty-five minutes. And he has this whole thing about like, oh, what do you get out of it? I get forty-five minutes. That whole thing. I thought that was really funny. Yeah. The whole uh, the whole rationale. So I just wanted to point out that right. his reaction there was kind of confounding for me. It's like, right. but I mean, I'm all all guys are different, so I don't see it from the same perspective. I'm like, dude, jackpot. She likes you. Calm down. <laughs> um, and it's what makes it what is also kind of uh interesting about the film structurally is that you know we spend we see that them in the army and then we fast forward through you know oh okay you saved my life let's let's become a team all right and then all their success in that little montage and then it's all just it's basically a romantic comedy for like 30 to 40 minutes until they get to the end and then it's it then of course, every movie like this, in addition to the formula that you mentioned that we talked about earlier with the romance and the love story, has that big coincidence where they're like, of course, generally Wave- General Waverly runs this in. Of course, naturally, of all the of all the gin joints in all the world, to, to quote one of the other Michael Curtis films, uh, <laughs> he ends up being there, which, you know, is kind of a, a, a big... You know, it's an inter- it's a big leap, but it's a you know it's a big Hollywood movie, so you're like whatever. But it's also it indicates kind of a a shift in the story itself because up to that point, it's just basically these guys, these girls. Is it gonna work? We'll have to watch and find out. And then when General Waverly shows up, it becomes a much more focused uh, narrative from that point on. Right. 
because then they learn, of course, that he wants to get the business is low. And they're like, well, how can we bring this up? Oh, Wallace and Davis could draw a crowd, that kind of thing. And uh, I think that, you know, it's interesting about how how the film then really finds its finds its direction, you know, because up to that point, they were they were just kind of going along to Vermont because they wanted to get away from it all and just kind of see where the, the, this connection with this girls took them. So how did you, you know, watching it now, I guess, you know, you have decades of experience watching the film, watching it at this point, how does, do you think that that's kind of, that shift is kind of jarring? Do you, do you like that? That's a, that quote surprise when Waverly shows up or would you have preferred just seeing the four of them dance around and sort of flirt and see what happened there? No, I did like it. I did really like it that they brought the general into it again. Uh, and I think you could tell at the beginning that he was going to be a very important part of the movie um, just by their reaction to him and how they respected him uh, at the beginning of the movie and how he misguided uh, the general that was going to be taking over so that he would get lost so that he could have... He wouldn't shut the show down right um at the beginning and so i think he i think he really deserved um to be in to be in the focus of the movie i really like that i i like that twist uh of him being there and how they can i just sometimes you say it's stage or you're in the right place the right time or you know whatever but i think that um i think it made those two guys, Wallace and Davis, I think they made them better people because they weren't just considering, you know, their own careers. They were bringing their show there at their own expense to help him. And then when he does that television bit and asks all of his, um, all of his division to come, you know, on Christmas Eve to right. be there. For him, I think, I mean, it just shows a lot of selflessness. And at the beginning, I didn't see it with them. I, I didn't, you know, but they, they, I don't know, they just, they made it, they made something happen. They made an old man very happy. Right. And uh, that's, that's, I think everything, I think they developed into better men. And, uh, and those girls, I think they developed into better women because they met Wallace and Davis and the whole thing ended up being made them all better people in my, in my view. Right. And then, um, no, I agree. And it's, you know, I think the, the movies, the big focus and a big theme of the movie is kind of the people that come into your life and uh kind of the difference that they you know that they make the people the, the lives that you touch kind of along the way kind of uh yeah. thing and i think that's really where the waverly story comes into play um so it looks like or so early on when they get there and they see that business is struggling their only way that they're thinking of helping the general out is by putting on a show and kind of helping to draw, draw a crowd to kind of ha to help his business reinvigorate business for him and then right. as it goes along the plan then becomes because he gets the letter he wants to get he's like oh i haven't been said anything but i really i really want to get back out there you know he's, they're going to try and stuff me in a desk job but screw that noise i need to back out in the front um 
he gets a letter from the army being like, yeah, no, we're good. Thanks. You're, you're old and retired. So we're going to leave you there. Um, it's interesting, you know, the fact that the movie starts out with such, with such a kind of cynical view of war, I think it is a little bit surprising, but also pretty realistic that somebody whose whole life has been, you know, battle kind of doesn't know what to do with himself otherwise. Like, it's not necessarily that he's right. like, oh, man, it was so much fun. I can't wait to go out there and, like, kick some ass, you know? It's really more like, yeah. it's really more that he doesn't, you know, his business is suffering. He's older now. He's like, I, I don't, I didn't, I don't know who I am without having this part of my life in play. And I think right. that that was a very, that's a very true to life thing. You hear that all the time from, you know, soldiers who come back and they're, they, they have, either dealing with PTSD because of what they experienced out there or just have a really tough time adjusting to civilian life. That's uh, exactly it. Yeah. And I, so I think that was, you know, a little bit of not darkness, but a little bit of reality in sort of in a, in a, what is overly overall kind of a very like, uh, you know, flashy um, Hollywood musical. And then there's the, there's the well, whole, go ahead. Yeah. It's that also that part when he's doing the, he's having Danny Kay distract the general so he's not watching TV at that time and he sings that song, you know. What can what you do, do, with, do with, a with a general? Yeah. When he stops being a general. That was very touching, you know. Yeah. And um, I, I don't know, I just, that's one of the parts that really chokes me up because as you get older, you know, sometimes you don't feel appreciated. You don't feel useful anymore. You know, right? Not that I'm talking like that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm like, I'm are saying, you okay? You should, know, we, should we stop the podcast I and get work, you some help? <laughs> I work. I work at a place where there's a lot of older people, mm-hmm. and they're in their 80s, and they don't feel useful anymore. Right. You know. So they made his miracle happen. Uh huh. Yeah, they did. Um, so I wanted to, before we get into sort of the third act misunderstanding, I wanted to make sure I mentioned that that whole midnight snack scene was really, was really cute. It was really adorable Yeah, with, yeah. with Rosemary yeah. Clooney and Bing Crosby. And according to the IMDB trivia, again, who knows how accurate that is, but according to that, it says that Rosemary Clooney has said that a lot of that was improvised, like on Bing Crosby's like... Oh, you have oh, really? you, you eat this. You have these kinds of dreams. You've had this. You didn't. And she's, and she's like, oh, what about liverwurst? He's like, I dream about liverwurst. That whole thing. A lot of that was was yeah. improvised by him uh, on the day, which I thought was really, which made that scene oh. even even uh, even more endearing in my eyes. And of course, that's when they sing, mm-hmm. "Count my blessings yeah. instead of sheep," which, as right. as you pointed out, is probably one of the big standout moments in the film. Of course, they have a connection there. Is I think that's the scene when they kiss, right? Yeah. Yeah, so they kiss. And then, of course, the whole movie becomes, well, let's put an obstacle in their way. And uh, Mary Wickes is Emma, the, the housekeeper. Uh, uh, hears the conversation and, of course, only hears the one side, so assumes that that uh, Wallace is, is trying to use the general and make him look like a fool on TV or whatever just so he can make a lot mm-hmm. of money. And then Betty and Bob, uh, Betty and Bob Wallace fight, and they have that whole that whole thing that happens, um, and uh, you know this the the best da- things happen when you're dancing reprise, blah blah blah. It's, how did you you know since you and, and Auntie relate to these sisters so much? 
what did you think about that dynamic with the two of them where Judy feels like she needs to, uh, that feels, she feels like Betty is not entering a relationship because she has to be on, on her mother hen duty. She has to make sure that her sister is taken care of, um, before she, she, you know, which is a very old fashioned notion, but again, this movie is 1954. So obviously it's old fashioned, but uh, how did you, did you relate to that dynamic at all? And, um, the fact that, you know, yeah, she, I, go ahead. I did. I did. I'm an older sister. So I, I do, you always want to protect your, uh, y- you know, your younger sister. Um, but oddly enough, my sister is exactly the same way for me. So, um, I think it's just the sisters that are that close. Um, it's like the song said, <laughs> you know, God help the mister who comes between me and my sister. Right. Uh, it, it, I think it's that kind of relationship that sisters have, that bond that, you know, you do feel like you have to be mother to them. And I'm like that with my sister and I, it's, Oddly enough, she's like that with me too. So, and there's only four years um, be- between you. We should mention too. Yeah, so it's not like you. It's not yeah. like there's a significant age difference or anything there to necessitate that. No. Yeah, I thought that was that was an interesting uh, an interesting dynamic that you know, I I haven't seen depicted on film that often, other than you know maybe something like Little Women or something like that. That's real. That's really focused on the sisterly dynamic. Um, I haven't. You know, you don't consider that from that point of view as often. Um, so then Betty takes off and she goes, she go to New York or somewhere. She goes somewhere. Yeah. yeah okay. She gets so, to New York. And then I really liked her. This is, this was Rosemary Clooney, who was already a very accomplished singer at this point in her career too. She does her whole loved you didn't do right by me number. And something that I noticed because I, re- I stumbled upon it in my research beforehand is that, oh man, what's the guy's name? I can't remember, but the guy, George, yes. Sahar- Sahar- okay. So you know about this. Okay. Harris. Yes, I do. I do. Did you know and, about this because um, you noticed him just one time? You're like, hey, Bernardo, what the hell are you doing here? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I did. Of course, you know, I uh, not earlier, but after well, yeah. I had seen West Side Story, I went, oh my gosh. <laughs> and he's a good dancer, right? Oh, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Very, very good looking man. He still is. I haven't seen what he looks like these days. I'll have to do that after, I, I, after this. I saw him on TV a few years ago when they had on a few of the stars, the major stars, and, uh, you know, Rita Marino, and he was there. And there was Russ Camblin who played, um, did he play Riff? Yeah, yeah. And George Harris, he looked great. He really looked great. So he kept up with good appearance. <laughs> Yeah, but that was, I know, that was uh, that was a big surprise when I saw him later, you know, after I had seen West Side Story. Right, of course. And what did you think of uh, Betty's big number, the Love You Didn't Do Right By Me? Because that's, that's her big oh, shining I- moment without having to share the spotlight with any anybody else, really, except for Bernardo. Uh, that, was, that was a great song, and she does it. She did it real good. She's, I, I like her voice. I, uh, she's very soulful. And she right. That was this, she was George Clooney's aunt, correct? I know. Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. And she didn't she didn't pass away that that long ago. I mean, it's within the last within the last decade, I think, something like that. Uh huh. Right. 
okay okay 2002 okay a little longer ago than i time goes by fast man i don't know it felt like i thought it was maybe like 2010 or something okay 2002 she passed away so um so yeah no she she has i think she's a very under uh, i think she's kind of the 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 secret weapon of this movie because bing crosby and danny Kaye obviously are the leads and vera allen gets a lot of her big like super crazy dance numbers and things like that but i when when there's this big ensemble scenes i think you forget just how talented rosemary clooney is and this is kind of the only, the big moment where you get to be like oh crap that's right she's a, she's amazing <laughs> you know yeah yeah and i wouldn't be surprised for her at that time if she was like okay i'll do the movie but can i have a solo number can we work that in there somewhere because this is like <laughs> i said this is really the only scene where she gets to just be you know have the spotlight all to herself um, right. So then Bob goes and shows up, and one thing I wrote in my notes is that he he's apologizing to her, but he doesn't really understand why she's mad at him. Still, she's like, "Oh, whatever I did, I'm sorry." And I I wrote in my notes that how amazing his his eyes are in that one moment. Like he's got really pretty blue eyes, but like in that scene, I was just like, "Whoa!" I was getting flashbacks to like Elijah Wood and some of the Lord of the Rings. Uh-huh. You know, he's got those really piercing blue eyes. I thought was were really yeah, they yeah. really stood out in that scene. And I think that's, you know, that's probably intentional on the part of the director just because you're supposed to really feel for he's kind of he kind of puts on the puppy dog eyes a little bit to apologize yeah, to Yeah, because he's all innocent and she's <laughs> He doesn't even know why she's mad at him. <laughs> I know, but he still goes and there and he's like, "Hey, please yeah, whatever I did, I'm sorry." <laughs> And that, that's a big transformation for him because, as we said at the beginning of the movie, he's like, yeah, I don't care about girls, whatever. And and uh, Davis keeps trying to hook him up with different, you know, other girls that are, you know, also singers, dancers, whatever. And he's like, oh, you're never going to find somebody like that in this business of ours. And then here he's like, hey, please take me. What's the matter? I thought we were getting close. What did I do to this <laughs> singer slash dancer? So I think that's kind of a big, it's basically his arc in this movie is kind of opening up his heart to yeah. ro- romance. Yeah. Um, so then after that, we have the whole thing with the TV and Davis distracting Waverly by uh, pretending to pretending to break his leg or sprain his, his you know, that whole thing. He's like, <laughs> oh, you just got to walk around on it. Oh, just a few minutes looking at his watch and things like that. I thought that was really funny. You get a lot of that uh, physical comedy from Danny Kaye there. And yeah, then, and then yeah. of course, Betty realizes what's going on and comes back. And we get the big moment that we love him. We, I feel like we've talked about most of this conversation. Uh, I also, I wanted, I mentioned that in that, gee, I was back in, uh, gee, I wish I was back in the army thing. There's a line in there where uh-huh. they, there's a line in there where they changed a bit of dialogue. Uh, I forget what they changed it to, but they basically, it's funny. They basically removed a reference to Bing Crosby because there's a line in there where they talk about, they mentioned Bing Crosby instead of, I don't know, whoever it was, Bob Hope or somebody. And they they changed the oh. lyric, which I thought was hilarious because Bing Crosby was was very much like Bob Hope, uh, you know, always entertaining the troops like a big USO guy, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So I thought that was that was um, that was really funny that they did that. And I didn't, you know, obviously I wasn't aware of that. Okay, so uh, they say Jolson, Hope, and Benny all for free. And there's a line yes. in there that the original lines are Crosby, Hope, and Jolson, all for free. According to the, my my research, I mean, that I thought, yeah, I know. 
it, it just goes to show you what a perfect casting choice Bing Crosby was this where they're like, oh, crap, that's too close to Bing Crosby. <laughs> let's ju- let's that's going to be distracting for people. Let's fix that. Um, and then, of course, the big finale with the snow and everybody has kisses and Bob gets a present, which is the uh, oh, the white knight. Um, the little, It's like a figurine of the white knight on the horse, which is a reference to their whole conversation. Uh, what did you right. how did you feel about the the present that uh, that Betty got him in the end? Do you oh, think that, that was perfect? A- and yeah, that was a perfect uh, gift because they did mention it, you know, um, at, at the beginning when they were first, you know, meet when they first met. Right. Um, it was it was uh, perfect. I, I'm thinking to myself, where did she <laughs> where did she find that at that time of night? But she came back with a, a white knight on a horse. I'm thinking, softly specific. Wow, that was pretty good. She must have saved it for him or something. But I, I love that part. And he happened to see it in the big sack of presents, and you know. And then they, of course they kissed. And then Danny Kay decided, well, I'm going to join in and I'm going to kiss my girl. And you know, now they both have potential wives. <laughs> And then presumably we'll just go keep maintain as sort of a four person show, kind of what they basically right. integrating right. integrating them into their act like they did for uh, for General Waverly in the first place. Right, right. So, is there anything else specifically? I guess before we go into kind of final thoughts and kind of closing up, uh, is there anything else in the movie that we didn't mention? This is actually I, I wanted to make sure I said this is actually the most successful film of nineteen fifty four. Just oh. by the way. So this was like the big movie that year. Right. Um, so anything I, else you wanted to make sure you added? The only, the, the, the part when they all sing after they lift the background of the doors is probably the most emotional thing for me. And I cry every single time I look at it. If I would look at it today, that ending, I always cry. And I think it's just, Another reminder of when I was a kid, that song, that part, even my sister, I mean, we would both cry at the end of the movie because it was just, I don't know, just very, very personal to my sister and I. It's also, you know, it's also, we live in a very complicated, often dark world. So for me, especially now being a dad, anything that, that kind of, that anything that, pushes all the darkness aside and is just like beautiful and perfect and uh, almost not naive, but almost like innocent has a certain air of mm-hmm. innocence about it, which is why the same reason I, right. I cry every time I hear the rainbow connection. It's just like, this is so beautiful. Why can't everything, everything be as pure as this? And why is everything got to be all yeah. ugly and gross and, you know, nasty and stuff like, like they are like, like it is out there. Um, and, and I, you know, I think you're the same way in a lot of ways. And especially when it comes to movies like this, where it's like a big, you know, the music swells, everybody's happy. Uh, the, you know, this, there's no, there are no problems in the world, according to this movie in that moment. I would ask you if this film, this is normally when I ask people if this film holds up, but I mean, we've already, you've already said, I just watched it twice this week. <laughs> so clearly you, you would still recommend it to people. I, I would definitely recommend it. Yeah, that's everything I have. Uh, thanks again, Mom, for coming on the show. I know you were really nervous. Thanks you did for inviting a, me. You did a great job, and uh, you know it, it, that's and that's part of why I think uh, this show is is so good. Is that I bring people on. I mean, I'm 
obviously biased, but it's part of why I think this approach is is so listenable and so easy for even people who don't have film criticism backgrounds to come on is that all I'm doing is asking you to come on and talk about something that you love already and just your natural passion for it. I think in this episode definitely came through. So thank you for sharing yeah, your experience with this movie and why you love it so much. And, you know, I, as your son, I have a, a new appreciation for the movie just in that regard, but also having watched the movie uh, sort of independently from that. I think that was, uh, you know, watching white Christmas during the holiday season at this point, um, was was a really fun experience for me as well. So thanks for coming on the show and um, and talking about it with me. I know that this is outside your comfort zone, so I appreciate you stepping out of it for us. <laughs> thanks for having me. <laughs> All right. It was great. <laughs> if you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com slash guest. Or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash crookedtable course you can always find more podcasts reviews videos and other movie related goodies over at crookedtable.com until next time this has been the crooked table podcast and i've been rob this has been a production of crookedtable.com all rights reserved that's the yard of the little kid <laughs>